This podcast is based exclusively on the real-life experiences of two bisexual cis women and their internet research. Sexual identity is deeply personal and influenced by intersecting identities, demographics, and circumstances. Rose and Annie do not speak for the bisexual experience of all individuals or the bisexual experience as a whole. In short, they don't know shit. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Rose, and I use the pronouns she and her. And I'm Annie, and I also use the pronouns she and her. And we're here to provide some context about the bisexual experience by sharing stories, getting advice, and talking about queer people we like. Preface, Annie and I are both getting over colds, so we might sound a little weird. Yeah, speaking of illness, we had them. Um, But yeah, we're going to talk about mental health. I was thinking about mental health today because I was walking, well, I was running, I was on a run after work, and I was like, man, it is now fall, it's like feeling like fall, and the sunshine is going away, and it makes a difference for my mood. Um, Same, on my way here, I was like, it's already bedtime, like it's dark out, I need my bike lights, why are we just going to get started now, but... Really, I just left work. Yeah. I don't know. It's for real. But yeah, so do you want me to start off with some hot stats? Yeah, please. Give me some hot stats. Um, So the stats that I have come from the Human Rights Campaign Health Disparities Brief. That's not the title of it because it obviously says the word bisexual in there somewhere. But it's all about the number of like the health differences for bisexuals. Uh, So bisexual people are at an increased risk of mental health problems compared to gay men and lesbians. So that's like of the LGBTQ, the bees are pretty blue. Yeah. Um, 40% of bisexuals have considered or attempted suicide, whereas just over a quarter of the gay and lesbian population has. I have no idea what the number is for heterosexuals. Bisexual women have double the rate of eating disorders compared to lesbians and a higher rate of binge drinking and alcohol-related problems than lesbian and hetero women. I could not find the exact breakdown of numbers. All of these problematic statistics are even higher when they're combined with intersecting identities, so folks who are bisexual and transgender, people of color, or people living with disabilities. Just a note that 40% of LGBTQ people who are also people of color also identify as bisexual. And about half of the population who identify as transgender also identify as bisexual or queer. So um, those are great stats to start off with. We're feeling really high energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They're real bummers. Uh, And a lot of the contributing factors are high levels of biphobia from within and external to the community. So feeling invalid or illegitimate being the focus of jokes, stereotypes, consistently hearing non-inclusive language, being victims or survivors. Let me rephrase that. I don't know. What's better, victim or survivor? Victim is like the legal term. So if you're a victim of abuse, but a lot of the strength-based language would say that we should use survivor of abuse. So a lot of bisexuals are subject to abuse. Um, And my unfounded opinion that I thought of today in the shower was that (laughs) uh, since you're constantly coming out when you're bisexual, you're also kind of constantly closeted. So each new group of people that you interact with, you're like, well, right now I'm in the closet and I have to think about when and if and how to come out to these people and that 
really puts a toll on your mental health. Totally. And Rose, since there's such an obvious problem with mental illness in the bisexual community, there must be a lot of funding for research and access to health care, right? Oh my gosh, you would think so, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. So that's one of our primary problems uh, that we noted is that there's tons of research and studies about how bad it is for bisexuals. And then we're like, but we don't need to figure out how best to care for them or what's the root cause and how we can make a difference in it. That would be a call to action. If you're somebody who's given out grant money, maybe look for people who have a focus on bisexual and mental health. Yeah. I know we have a ton of people who have grant money. Yeah. Just laying around. I, I like to think that a lot of like wealthy eccentrics listen to this podcast. Wealthy bisexual eccentrics. Obviously. <laughs> Billionaires. Oh, I like that. Billionaires. So yeah, if you're if you're one of our wealthy um, listeners, just, just go ahead and start a little foundation. Thanks. Yeah, get right on that. And if you're um, many of our academic listeners, that might actually be more true. Yeah. If you're our academic listeners, uh, and you know, do the thing. Yeah, do the thing. I don't know what that is. School stuff. Do the school stuff. Do the studies. Do Let the us. studies. Then um, get them in front of like Congress people. Yeah. And then make policy changes. Yeah. So just do that, okay? <laughs> cool. Thanks. Write write us and let us know what you've done. Yeah. Um, I think also one of the things that can really like Annie and I both have experience with this rock your world mental health wise is losing someone who's super important to you, like a spouse or a parent. Yeah. Spouse loss. I just it, it was pointed out in one of the studies that I was reading that often, I don't know if you, listener, have ever lost a partner or have been close to someone who's lost a partner, but I think for straight people, people feel really, really intensely about losing their partner. And, you know, a, a man who is recently widowed will have people come come to him and give him food and, like, take care of him for an amount of time and I think if you're part of the LGBT community you're not always treated with that same thing because people even people who like are cool with the gays they don't treat it the same way it can be especially difficult um, mental health wise for people who have recently lost partners uh, because there's just not the same social support network as straight people I kind of like rocked my world when I read that when my dad died I remember so many like in my mind I was like why are, why is this person in my home because I was I you know it was years ago I was pretty hurt obviously um but I was just like um who is like the custodian at the tennis courts that my parents played at and why are they in my house, like, putting groceries in my refrigerator? Thank you. But also, I'm trying to grieve here. Get out. It was really becoming. Grief looks good on me. <laughs> great on everyone. <laughs> but so there's there's just, you know, the really bizarre people who are connected to your community who kind of came out for my mom and were trying to offer support in whatever way that they could. And if you think about if you're only relying on your LGBT, BTQ community to offer that it's going to be a smaller subset 
Yeah. Or maybe also, I don't know if it's like our heterosexual people who are more acquaintances, do they feel less comfortable? Yeah. Coming into your... I think that's part of it. Yeah. And also like for straight people, it's like, man, what if that happened to me? What if my partner died? I would be devastated. I have to like do something because I feel empathy. And they see queer people as having like a different dynamic or like they don't identify with it. They don't feel that empathy. And so they don't think to... I mean, of course there are straight people who do, but you know, it's it's a smaller percentage of... LGBT folks who yeah. are being supported in that way. Yeah, it's like it totally makes sense now that you've mentioned it, but it's crazy. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. Also, homelessness can oh. contribute to one's mental health in a big way. Yeah, it's super difficult. Um, homelessness is prevalent among the LGBTQ <laughs> community as a whole. Um, but I pulled out some numbers about the bisexuals who are experiencing homelessness or um, housing instability. So 40% of the youth population who are experiencing homelessness are LGBTQ. I lied. That number is not about bisexuals only. That's about the whole LGBTQ population. (laughs) Whereas only 7% of the general youth population is LGBT. So it's way higher for LGBTQ kids to experience homelessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it it just doesn't correlate. So uh, some stats from the Bisexual Resource Center said that there's a higher percentage of bisexuals who've reported running away from home one or more times compared to their gay and straight peers. Bisexual youth stated that their homelessness was attributed to physical abuse from parents and their straight and gay peers. All LGBTQ youth who are experiencing homelessness also have a greater risk of contracting HIV. I feel like those are the important Notes And I just think it's essential to kind of like bring that up that I don't know if anybody's heard of the concept of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's basically like food, water, shelter is going to be baseline what you have to take care of. And then physical safety, things like that. You move up the pyramid to more higher level like needs that you can care for to make yourself a fully realized, actualized human being. And so if you're struggling to shelter yourself or get food or feel safe, it's going to be super challenging to take care of your mental health and live your fullest life and be self-actualized and be able to achieve and create art and contribute to society. So it's hugely problematic that anyone is experiencing homelessness and it's very troubling that it's at such a high rate among LGBTQ youth. That's 100% true. (laughs) Um, And this is all to say, you know, obviously this is terrible that LGBT youth experience homelessness and mental health crises at such a high rate um, and and LGBT people in general and bisexuals, especially in, in certain demographics. But it's also to say that if you are someone who has experienced or is experiencing Uh, mental health crisis or if you have a mental illness then you're not alone obviously we all wish we were completely mentally healthy (laughs) and we strive to be but I mean it is I would say it's an epidemic in in the LGBT community and it, it stems from like Rose said feeling like 
you aren't valued by your society or perhaps much smaller scale by your family and friends and peers. So if you if you feel like you aren't mentally healthy, you're not alone, you're unfortunately. Not alone, sadly. And also I think there's a lot I think we're moving in the right direction on it as a society, but there is a stigma around mental health and getting mental health support. But you should know that like there is no shame in getting mental health support. You are stronger than people who are gritting, quote unquote, gritting their teeth and bearing it because you're doing the difficult thing of asking for help. And it's super hard to admit weakness and be vulnerable um, especially when to speak about it openly, it gets such shit. And I think I think a lot of the younger generation are a lot more open about it and they're like, fuck, we all have anxiety, which is terrible on one hand that they're all like, mental health is problematic for everybody. Let's talk about it. Yeah. But great that they're talking about it. And also you may be completely mentally healthy, but you have concerns about friends or family member and you, you want to know how to best support them we wanted to make this episode as a way to hopefully give some advice advice about (laughs) um what to do if you are feeling like you need to talk to a therapist or a mental health professional or if you want to help one of your friends who is experiencing mental illness um or if you have straight up no idea where to start right yeah by seeking help, you could be saving your own life. I have a personal mental health triage method <laughs> uh, that I use when I'm maybe feeling like I'm not at my mental best. Uh, first, I kind of ask myself, baseline, am I happy to be alive? Am I excited for things? Do I still get excited for things? Am I excited for other people to be alive? Am I feeling good about life? Am I feeling good about humanity existing? (laughs) And if my answer is no, I ask myself how long I've felt that way. Because sometimes I'm surprised. I'm like, wow, I haven't been excited about anything in a long time, like Mm -hmm. too long. And that's not normal. So if if I haven't been excited for anything in longer than a week, I know that there's probably something wrong. And I have a few steps that I take that have worked for me in the past. I think this is often called self-care, which is kind of like a millennial buzzword, but... We will be putting it in the title, hashtag (laughs) self-care. These are very basic and totally free. I like to write about what's bothering me. I, Rose, I don't know if you have ever done this. 100%. (laughs) I started journaling in September of last year when I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to go back to drinking. I'll talk a little bit about my experience drinking later. But I wrote every day straight up for as long as I wanted to for like three and a half months. And it just helped me sort things out at that time where I was really questioning, like, what am I doing? What do I want to do? Who am I? Usually after like five or 10 minutes, I'm like, okay. Yeah. Seeing patterns. Yeah. Yeah. When for me, it's when my thoughts are like so loud that if I don't write them, I'm going to start shouting. (laughs) It also for me, I think helps me. I'm a very like structural organized person. So when I'm like, okay, I'm going to list out, like, I'll just be like, 
10 things that I'm feeling right now. And it'll be like one, two, three, four, five. And then I'm like, okay, but really all of the odd numbers are the same thing. Let me write about that for a minute. Like I'm actually feeling really anxious about X, Y, and Z. Why am I feeling anxious about it? And what do I want to do about it? And just free writing, no judgment. Who cares about spelling or if I can ever read it again? Right. Just go for yeah, it. Yeah, you could burn it afterwards. Um, I also like to go for a run or walk or a bike ride. Uh, no music. It helps you. It helps me think and just kind of process things. I like to call my dad because I, I sometimes don't even talk about myself. I just like he lives kind of an idyllic life mm -hmm. and I like to hear about it. And I'm like, OK, I'm going to be old someday and be at peace, hopefully. <laughs> I really I haven't ever thought about that, that calling a, an older adult is like, oh, it's calming in this way that like someone's. Someone's just chilling. You've already been through all of yes. this. <laughs> and it's just reassuring that you have. For me, this is probably very personal for me, but I like to not look at screens any more than I have to, especially not news and especially not the comment section of news. <laughs> um, it's like hot lava in there. I It just really fucks me up. I deleted a few social media apps off of my phone in the last month and... I just went back on one today and I was like, eh, no, <laughs> mm -hmm. I've learned to not promise myself that I only look at like good news or pictures of animals because the internet has a way of sucking you into the worst part of it. Or it does for me. I'm sure someone uses their internet therapeutically, but for me, I like, I'm too curious. I got to look at the bad shit. I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like I'm very good about keeping my like if I see myself looking at someone's stuff that I'm like, why I'm feeling badly about this. I'm just like unfollow block. I don't want any of that crap right. in my life. But it sneaks in places that you don't think. For me, I'm like this Reddit is amazing. The subreddit's great. But why are some of the comments just like, let's be terrible misogynistic pricks? Because we're looking at pictures of fucking goats <laughs> why do we have to do this <laughs> yeah it's wild it's wild how you can just be having a great time on the internet and then read something and you're like what the yeah and then i just read i find myself i'm like well i'm gonna investigate though right. i want the whole yeah, picture on this person i'm gonna look at everything they've ever posted and then i'm in a subreddit that's terrible and it's my own fault but more that like more often than that, I just find myself spending more time than I want to be. And then at the end of the week, I'm like, I didn't read anything. I'm like, yeah, but I sure scrolled a lot on different social media for no reason. Yeah. If if all of my feelings of hopelessness and like not being able to be excited about anything persist, that's when I decide that it's probably time to talk to a mental health professional. Or the other thing is, and this is probably more likely for me, if I am repeating these steps over and over again and like having to do that, then I'm like, okay, time to talk to someone. But I would say if your base feeling is you don't want to be alive, don't do any of these steps. Go straight to mental health professional. <laughs> yeah, like the internet being like hashtag self-care, that is how you maintain good mental standing, different things you do to keep yourself well. 
if you feel like you do not want to live, reach out to someone immediately. There's no better way to say it. Yeah. Speaking of Reddit and all the great subreddits, <laughs> I look at uh, not the terrible comments that sometimes appear. Um, we got some advice uh, from goats. So <clears throat> these are collated to kind of like the top themes that came up. Uh, number one, professional help. Going to talk to a mental health professional, maybe getting on medication if required. But if you do that, maintaining supervision as you do it. Being out if you have the option and are able. It's a weight off your chest. Um, somebody also said that when they're in a relationship with someone and they feel like they want to stay in touch with their bisexuality, they'll just watch gay or straight porn That's or yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, like, like a way to, like you're not feeling like you are 100% suppressing yourself. Whether it's pornography or something more innocent, uh, finding a way to express all aspects of your sexuality, even if you're in a monogamous relationship. Exercise, Annie mentioned it. I love to do some bike thinking as well. Taking care of basic things that seem little. So tidying up your personal space, taking a shower, vacuuming your rug, like I read, I read once that like the first thing you should do when you get up is make your bed because then you have one done something already with your day and then you are less likely to crawl back in it. 100%. That's a huge tip for all sobriety things. Yeah. Interesting. I, I make my bed every day ever since I read that. I also make my bed every day except today and I had a hard time getting out of bed today. <laughs> Say no to things. And just remember that no is a complete sentence. Yeah, you don't need an explanation. In fact, most people don't give a shit. Don't, yeah. They, if they expect an explanation, then that's weird. That's a weird person you don't want in your life. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, reach out and find communities online uh, or in person if you have the opportunity. But online affords a way to remain anonymous. And then also you can really connect with a lot of caring people. Who have similar experiences. Yeah, it's not all bad out there. Find a find a community that when you visit it, it consistently makes you feel good. Or that if, if people say, if the comments are turning south, everyone's like, get this fuckwad out of here. Like, why is this person doing this? Get them out. We hate them. They're not a part of it. Help others. Do some volunteer activities. And then talk to your friends, allies, peers, family who get it. Yeah. Uh, I want to make a note that in New York City, they have a free mental health first aid training. Um, it's most of the day. It's like 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. I've done it. You get certified. They go over a lot of different topics. So mental health issues, drug abuse issues, suicide, um, and how to handle people who are in different states. So if somebody's having a psychotic episode, what do you do? A lot of things are really enlightening. There's a Recorded statistic. It's like herd immunity. If like 20% of the population knows how to handle mental health and administer mental health aid, then everyone is more safe. Yeah. Um, so they're trying to reach that threshold. I can't remember what the exact percentage is. So if you live in New York City, check that out. It's a public health issue. It's probably existent in other cities and areas around the world. So look into it. It was really great. There's also a way to assess your friends, family, and loved ones, or coworkers, or people you just met, <laughs> or people you follow on Instagram, um, assess them for suicide and personal harm risk. The best way to do that is to ask them, are you considering suicide? 
Yeah. If somebody's exhibiting things or just behaving in a way that you're like, I think there's some problematic things going on. I don't know how much we want to get into what those are. Yeah, if you want. I can spout off what I know. Stopping talking about your future plans, losing interest in things that are going on, giving away your personal possessions. A lot of times immediately before having like very high energy kind of out of the blue, there are lack lacking personal hygiene. A lot of the symptoms of depression are a part of the symptoms of suicide ideation, but specifically things like talking about the end or saying goodbyes to people, giving away things are kind of, okay, you really need to speak with this person. A lot of things that I've read, and I think a common misconception is that asking someone about suicide is going to put the idea in their head. And that is 100% not true. By asking someone directly about suicide and if they're considering suicide, you're giving them a space to talk about it when otherwise they're probably feeling crushed by the emotions they're already experiencing and also unable to talk about it. Yeah. So you're giving that person an opportunity to speak with you. So that's the best thing you can do is directly ask, are you considering suicide? And if they say yes, you want to ask if they have a plan. So that's ideation. If you say, are you considering suicide? And they say yes. And you ask if they have a plan. Ask specifics. Do you know when? Do you know where? Do you have a weapon? Again, you're just gathering information right now and you're letting that person talk about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Whew. So that's a doozy. Yeah. It's really hard. It's real. I mean, it, we are like, yeah, just ask them if they're going to commit suicide. But that's probably the hardest question you're ever going to ask someone. And once you've asked it and they say yes... And once you've asked for specific information from them and they start giving you that information, then what do you do? So you're going to listen. This is not the time for you to be like, oh, you shouldn't be that sad. Yeah. Because of X, Y, Z, you have all of these things going for you. You shouldn't talk about how bad their family is going to feel if they decide to do that. Now's not your opportunity. Like you are not the expert. That is so vital to know. You're not the expert and it is not your job to take this person from contemplating suicide all the way through to like feeling mentally stable, really strong, have great coping mechanisms in one conversation. What you're going to do is be a friend and a support. So you're going to ask and then you're going to listen. And the third step is reassuring them. Yep. So just saying, I love you. I am here for you. And I'm going to do everything that I can to help you get through this. These are all good steps. Also, if the person says no, they're not contemplating suicide. Yeah. Um, you can talk to them through these steps. As far as if they are expressing depression, Yeah. you can help them still get mental health and live more fulfilled lives. Yeah, there's still value in saying, hey, just so you know, I really value you you add value to my life and I love you and then you know asking them if they would consider getting getting treatment yeah um, from a mental health professional is the next step encouraging them to seek professional help um and and maybe even 
calling someone up right then. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's like a decision tree and the decision tree for somebody says, no, they're not contemplating suicide is very like long-term support, getting help. It's really valuable to help somebody find the resources because if they're experiencing depression, they may not be able to do it themselves. Yeah. And also following up with them and offering them support in any way that you can. Um, giving them a ride, sending them links you like, <laughs> literally asking them, how's your new therapist? Um, if that's the route that they decide to take. Versus if the answer is yes, they're contemplating suicide. Um, you're going to ask a lot of questions and you're going to offer this supportive environment, but ultimately getting those resources is going to be an immediate thing. And while you don't have to get them you don't have to do anything, but while having that conversation doesn't make you responsible for getting them to 100% mental health, you are in a position that you should stay with them until they are with someone who is a mental health professional. Woo. Oh, it's heavy. Yeah. I also want to say that just by having that conversation, I've had experiences where somebody has called me out for behavior I was exhibiting not in a negative way, just it was after my dad died, they were like, you're being really weird in these three ways. And I was like, I thought no one was noticing and yeah. I was just skating by. Yeah. So having someone call you out on specific behavior can really like, hey, I felt loved. I was like, holy fuck, people care about me and are paying attention to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of helped me be like, okay, I really need to like, I get, need to get some help. Get serious, yeah. I mean, get serious about getting help. <laughs> Stop uh, goofing around, Rose. <laughs> oh, Rose, you're so silly. Yeah, so those are the steps that this uh, mental health first aid uh, folks prescribe, and, and plenty of other mental health professionals, I think, would probably tell you <coughs> similar steps. If you're a person who needs mental health help, or if you are trying to find resources for someone else, we have some of those for you. Um, there's a lot of hotlines, specifically uh, the UC Davis hotline, the Gay and Lesbian National hotline, the Trevor Suicide Prevention hotline, the National Runaway hotline. There's some resources to find um, a counselor who specifically specializes in LGBTQIA. There's the Bisexual Aware Professional Directory at bizone.org. We'll put links to all of these in the show notes. There's Pride Counseling, which is an online resource. And then psychology.com has a filter that you can use. The National Alliance on Mental Health has a specific section for LGBTQ people. I would say all of these hotlines are free. Mental health professionals who you go to on a recurring basis vary in price depending on what your insurance is like, if you have insurance. A lot of community centers also offer support groups that are totally free. Um, so check out your local community center as always. Also, if you're enrolled in school, you or your your school probably has a counseling center and hopefully an LGBTQ center. So you can tap into both of those resources um, depending what you're most comfortable approaching first. I don't know this from any experience, but I would imagine if you went to your LGBTQ center and said, I'm looking for mental health resources, they would know who was a good person to talk to in your counseling center. Totally. Totally. Uh, also, this episode kind of came about because Rose asked in her call for advice last time 
uh, for tips on vetting your your therapist or your mental health professional for queer friendliness um, or just like a good fit. What did you what did you find out? Well, my first two things are from like personal experience. The first one, oh my gosh, when I first moved to New York, I was having a really hard time. I was really lonely and I was stressed at work. And I went to this therapist because he was close to my office. And I went for probably like three months and I never told him anything because he wasn't a good fit. I didn't like him at all. I just didn't like him. I didn't like his style. I didn't like his face. He never remembered fucking anything that I told him. Yeah. And I just kept going because it was too uncomfortable. So please know it is 100% fine to dump your therapist. Yeah. You don't have to give a reason. Just never show up for a second appointment. You don't have to say anything. If you're in a longer term thing, you might want to be like, hey, I'm not dead. I'm just going to discontinue seeing you anymore. Um, Ask for other references if you feel comfortable and you're looking for someone new. Let them know that you're going to discontinue therapy altogether. But if you're just trying to find somebody, like, you don't have to say anything. You can end the session and be like, that was terrible. I'm not going to do it again. I am way more considerate to people I've gone on first dates with than I am to therapists who I've had a session with. I'm like, I owe you nothing. I paid you. Enjoy. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. I won't be back. Right. And no one has ever followed up with me. Yeah. yeah. No one has showed up at my door and been like, why don't you like me? <laughs> why aren't you here? They're fine. They're fine. They're all good. They don't care. Yeah. And you may be tempted to think like, oh, it's just going to take me a while to warm up to them. But if, if, it's, if it's not happening, it's just not happening. If you give them, I, for me, it's usually if I give them two sessions and I don't know, I'm like not interested in doing a third. But you'll have your own, your own method and what feels right for you. And that kind of leads into the, my second like personal experience lesson, lesson is be patient it might, you might have to see, you might have to go on like 10 bad dates Yeah. before you find someone who rules. I mean, be patient with yourself. Yeah. Don't be patient with them. If if they are not good right off the bat, just don't blame therapy and don't blame yourself. (laughs) It is like dating. Yeah. You have gone on probably, you've probably gone on some bad dates, but you've probably had some good relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that, it's just good to keep in mind. Rose has a note here that says, look for overall qualifications and techniques that suit you. So you can actually talk to your therapist in your first session specifically about why you're there and ask, like, is there a technique that you think would be best for me or that has worked for people in the past? I, I personally had a combination of traditional talk therapy and EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing <laughs> I had to look it up and that was after I think two therapists uh, had not worked out for me and that one was great worked great for me I don't know so give it a give it a few tries I think also if you're somebody who wants to have more confidence in your who you're picking if you want to narrow the pool 
you can look online and look at different types of therapy and see like, okay, I want to do like CBT or I definitely want to do talk therapy or I don't know enough about therapy to name the other types that are available. But if you see something that you're like, that sounds interesting, you can look up someone by their specific um, technique or skill set and go to them and be like, so I came to you because you do this. Tell me all about it. Go to someone and be like, tell me about all the different types of therapy that are available, not just that you offer yeah. and use them as like a quick buffet menu and then go pick out everyone else because you're paying them. You can use the time for yeah. whatever you want. Exactly. Exactly. Some um, A Reddit user said specifically they would ask about any training or certifications that the mental health professional has in regard to LGBT issues and whether they've counseled specifically bisexual people in the past, which is great. I've never done that, but I will moving forward. Okay, now I think the rest of these are all Reddit tips that I got. Um, so be honest during your session about your sexuality and how you enjoy sex. Remember that you shouldn't have to teach your therapist about your sexuality. If you come out in the first session or the fifth session, whatever, um, for me, I would do earlier. But if you come out as bisexual and your therapist is like, oh, that's not really a thing. Let's talk about your deviancy. Nope. No, Walk out the door. A, that's a hard no. That's a hard no. You gotta get out of there. Yeah, scram. That, that person is not going to help you. Yeah, that person's a joke. Get get them off. The don't get don't get them off. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> you get out. Do not have sex with them. That is not the advice I'm giving. Yeah. Also, like report them to a board or something. Also, it's okay to seek someone based on race, age, gender etc. to better match your experiences, background, culture, or just your preferences. Like, that's okay. This is for you. It doesn't make you a jerk to be like, but I kind of want someone who's at least 40 or I want someone who's under 90. Like, yeah. all of those things are fine. Yeah. This one I thought was very interesting. So this was from a person who said that they were very involved in the kink scene in a small LGBTQ community. And so... When they spoke to their therapist, they hashed out pretty early on how would they deal with running into each other in a queer setting. Interesting. So discussing how are you going to handle it? Because in New York City, I'm like, I'm probably never going to run never. into my therapist. Yeah. But in a small town, there might be like 20 people who are out. And you're going to see each other. Yeah. And of that 20 people, there might be five people who are also out and active in the kink community. Yeah. So just talk about it. Yeah, I have to say, not to scare you in a way, but I have run into every single therapist that I've ever had outside of the office. No! Why? One, one time on an airplane. <laughs> That's a fucking nightmare. It was weird because I had just been talking about her to my dad. And then we were on the same flight as her. Like my dad and I saw her on the flight. I was like, whoa. What did you do? I just said hi. She was she was one of the good ones too. So I was like, okay. Yeah, if you see a bad one out, you can just be like, you're wrong. I don't know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've never seen each other before, right? Um. I also wanted to talk a little bit about if you are new to therapy, how to approach it. 
Um, I was very leery of therapy when I started and probably went about it the wrong way. Basically, like every story I've ever told (laughs) on this podcast about myself, I didn't do it right the first time. Annie needs to get better about using strength-based language with herself. Well, I mean, there are lots of good... There are good stories. I've done good things. It's important to talk about ways that I fucked up so that other people don't fuck up similarly. But no, it's human. Humans are fallible. Yeah. Yeah. So I started going to therapy in college and I would sit in my counselor's office for the full hour every week, completely silent, listening to someone in the next room, talking to whatever therapist also worked in that office crying and talking I could hear them a little through the wall and I would just sit there and think like that person's a fucking whiner because I was a jackass and I really needed to talk about my problems and I probably really needed to cry so I was spending months being miserable and not doing anything about it I I lashed out at all of my friends I ruined a bunch of relationships uh I could I could still probably reach out to people I was friends with before that time in my life and be like hey what's up I wanted to reconnect like I'm sorry I was such a dick and those people would be like go fuck yourself no (laughs) yeah yeah I just like couldn't deal with anything I was having trouble with all my relationships even people I loved especially people I loved I couldn't make friends I didn't even want to make friends and I had this whole like, I don't I don't do therapy, very goodwill hunting hmm. type routine. Mm-hmm. If I could go back and do it all over, I would just put in the work to to get better and get better faster that way. Uh, because my life is great now because I did eventually open up to people and I could have relieved that pain much quicker. So. The lesson learned is that you'll have to be trusting and communicative in order to make progress. And it's possible that because of your past, opening up to people about your perceived weaknesses, especially people you don't know, is very hard. Um, And that can be especially true for men and especially true for men who have served in the military and or men from conservative families or communities. But it's common for plenty of other people as well culturally we reward the like suck it up and walk it off mentality so therapy will be super hard um for you if you are like me yeah (laughs) and tell your therapist that like that is what eventually I ended up doing I just had to say it's really hard for me to talk to you because when I've been open with other people in the past I have been told that I'm being a baby or that I need to, you know, walk it off. Or you might be someone who feels like people depend on them to be mentally sound and level-headed and protective. um, And therefore you cannot be vulnerable to anyone or open up to anyone. And a good therapist will talk to you about what they can do to make a, a space that makes you feel safe to be vulnerable. Oh, another thing that happened to me in therapist was that I was asked a lot of questions about why I feel certain ways, (laughs) which I hated and I still hate. (laughs) Super hard to answer. So you'll say like, I felt, I felt this way the other day and your therapist will be like, well, why do you think you feel that way? 
And I'll be like, well, I don't know, Sarah. What do you think I'm paying you for? Yeah. Tell me why I feel that you way. You tell me why. Um, but the best approach is to answer honestly. And I had a therapist tell me this very recently, but the therapist is not your life coach, uh, your business partner, or your spouse. They aren't there to make decisions for you. They cannot listen to you talk about feelings you've had or have and then tell you why you feel that way, uh, which was my misunderstanding about therapy. <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, they're going to figure me out. Um, they can't tell you how to make feelings stop or start. Uh, therapy is just a, a place of reflection where you can learn how and why you make certain decisions and use that knowledge to influence better decision-making down the road. My metaphor is a bike metaphor. The therapist is the lubricant to the gears. <laughs> Uh, it just makes the chain run a little smoother, and you have to pedal. You have to do the work. They just make the work a little easier. I love that, but I think you miss an opportunity to emphasize the bike, bike. Yeah. metaphor. Yeah. Um, I would just hop in and say also, um, as far as like talking honestly in therapy, 99% of the time that I go to a new therapist, I lie the first session. Wow. Okay. And usually I can tell if the therapist are, or is good or not if I cry in the first session because they're like, all right, let's like cut the bullshit. Yeah. Like nobody, <laughs> no one has ever called me out on that and been like, you're full of shit. Right. But like I left one therapist's office and she was like, I don't even think you need therapy. And I was like, great, thanks. I was like, I can't go back to her. She doesn't know anything. Yeah. yeah it's funny. We have that need to protect ourselves, but we're there to get help. <laughs> And like, I think people pleasing, like I wanted yeah. to be like, I'm doing all of the things right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. that, yeah, that the therapist would be like, good patient, you're already doing it perfectly. And I'd right. be like, great. Why isn't it working then? <laughs> like, That's so real. It's a very human thing to do. And you just want to remember that probably if you're a person who's going to therapy, you're probably also a person who's built up a lot of defense. Yes. Yes, and it will take time to get used to knocking those defenses down. And it's to go back to what Rose was talking about before, it's really hard to do that if you just don't like the person. (laughs) Yeah, it's so, yeah. So find someone you like. So find someone you like. Yeah, I I should close up my story. I stopped going to that therapist um, in college. I went to a new one also in college, different different person the person I saw on the plane actually um and she was amazing I really had this idea about myself that I was like a logical person who is on top of everything and and everything's very organized in my brain I was like I need the kind of therapy where you know there's no bullshit we're just like just talking like person to person keeping it real I don't know. I've seen like movies where I, mm-hmm. like that happened. Yeah. And I did the wishy-washiest, like bullshittiest <laughs> version of therapy. And that was the one that helped me. Like I talked about my dreams. I talked about like visions I had had. I talked about like spiritual stuff. <laughs> and that was what helped me. It was... So you just like open up, be open to things. Be open and like whatever works for you is great. I guess I can talk about something that's worked for me improving my mental health that is 
not therapy, although I am, I should be in therapy. I'm going to start looking for a therapist. That's my goal. So I was on vacation last week and I went to uh, my best friend's sister's wedding. And I've known all of her family for 13, almost 14 years. And I brought my girlfriend. It's the first time they've met my girlfriend. And her dad said that he felt like I was the happiest he had ever seen me. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And Cassandra's fantastic. And having like a loving, supportive partner and being able to be super out in my life and really like embrace my full self has been so amazing and wonderful. But 100% the reason I am happy is because I am sober. And not to discredit like, It's like all of the things that I've gotten to do and be an experience are because I'm sober. Like every, that for me is the first building block. I was reading those stats about bisexuality and drinking and I was like, well, I don't even know if my bisexuality has anything to do with my drinking. And I was like, I need to talk to therapist about this for sure I have not talked to a therapist since I quit drinking and feel more certain about that or since I came out as bisexual so those are like two things that I'm really interested in talking about but before I decided to quit I really didn't know if my drinking was problematic I was kind of under the impression that because I was holding a job I was in a long-term relationship I paid my rent I had living animals that I cared for and I was getting a master's degree, I was like holding it all together that everything was fine and that there couldn't be a problem, but I was really like destroyed on the inside. Mm -hmm. I was living a long time not really knowing myself and I covered that up with alcohol use. I constantly, whether I was actively drinking or just in the days after drinking, um, feeling anxious and frustrated and I couldn't articulate why and I felt like I really didn't have a grasp on my feelings um, and I didn't have any like clarity or sense that I really knew who I was or what I wanted to do. So every single thing that I did in my life felt like a huge choice and a huge decision and that it would like impact everything. So I asked my friends about like every minute detail, like should I do this or should I do that? I don't know because if I do this, X, Y, and Z. Bless my friends who put up with that. But it was like I couldn't make a decision for myself because I didn't know who I was and I didn't know what I wanted. And I also was really afraid of looking at my drinking because I felt like it was a huge part of my personality. And like the thing that makes me likable is that I can drink a lot and I'm very social when I do. I found groups and social settings that really afforded the amount that I was drinking. I was always worried if we would have enough alcohol and if everyone was drinking the same amount and if we were getting low, I was like, I'll be the one who goes and gets more. Like I was always eyes on how much we had and if we were all like at the same level. I feel like in my college days, I could have been meeting and dating people. Instead, I was like, getting drunk at parties and then waking up and being like 
why isn't this turning into a deeper connection? Right. I'm so confused. Yeah. I think it also let me keep like my interest in women in this kind of like, I do that when I'm drunk. It doesn't mean anything arena, which is super unfair, not only to myself, but to the people I was hooking up with, like really messed up. So I don't think that complete sobriety is necessary or the answer for everybody. But if you're thinking about it or you're looking at your relationship with alcohol and seeing that it's not exactly how you want it to be, I definitely encourage taking time off. I started my sobriety being like, I'm going to do a year sober and see what happens. And my method of actually doing something is just telling everybody I'm going to do it. And then yeah. I'm like, fuck, I have to keep my word. Yeah. So I just told everybody I was going to do a year of sobriety. And then around nine months, I started being like, okay, well, it's nine months. Am I going to go back or not drink at all? And I was, I was really afraid of being like, no, I'm sober now. It's a capital S. It's serious and important to me. Interesting. Um, I feel like at that point, I was able to look back at what had happened since I stopped drinking and being like, I'm getting more and more self-assured and feeling confident and my emotions aren't all over the place. And I've like been able to do more and feel very secure in all of my decisions. And so I just decided like, well, I don't care what other people think and I'm not going to drink. And that's going to be that. And that's kind of like, if you decide not to drink for a little bit or for a long time, you will get feedback from people. You can feel more secure in your decision to cut certain people out of your life. Yeah. <laughs> to keep certain people in. Yeah. Um, to bring in new people. It's just like, you get to be 100% yourself 100% of the time. And that doesn't mean that it's not hard. And like, the other day at the Trader Joe's checkout line, I was like, oh, this pumpkin beer is called Rosemary's Baby and that's my favorite movie and no one would know if I bought a six pack and drank it at my apartment. And I'm like, whoa, brain, what are you doing? Whoa. Why is that? These are the leaps in logic. <laughs> I don't like pumpkin beer. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, that's not what I want. I don't know why my brain is like, let's do this. But those moments having like a foundation for just coping with it feels great if you decide to experiment at all don't let the haters get you down yeah definitely not fuck them and I would just say like sorry this is kind of a rant about sobriety now but like <laughs> for me I honestly I could not be out I would not be out and I wouldn't be active and I wouldn't be happy if it weren't for my sobriety wow that's funny hearing you talk about it really reminds me of someone just describing a bad or abusive relationship you talk about how like it's hard to meet people in an authentic way and there were years of your life you could have been like making real connections you're always like tense at parties waiting for this alcohol to like be there or not be there I mean I think that's really so true <clears throat> it's like you're isolated you're isolating yourself I remember being like alcohol kind of like my longest friend I don't know if I want to just end that friendship yeah. and so many things that I felt obligated to continue doing or be because I was wrapped up in this like this is who I am there's nothing wrong in taking time off to see who are you without alcohol 
everything's everything's scary to do for the first time sober. Yeah. But I'll just, I'm going to brag for a second. <laughs> I dated for the first time after a six-year relationship completely sober. Oof. So if I can go on the like 35 first dates that I went on totally sober, y'all be fine. You, like <laughs> You can too. <laughs> it, it just takes like one one sober date where you're like, oh, what I would normally have two or three drinks to get through is just the amount of time that it takes to like stop feeling super uncomfortable that you're talking to a stranger. Right. Yeah. We like to make alcohol responsible for more than it is. Yeah. I am not sober. I enjoy a drink, but there have been times, including just today, where I was like, I need to take a little break. I need to take a little break from drinking, I think. Because, man, it's not good for you. <laughs> it's not good for you. And it's it's all related to your mental health. It's really easy to recognize how you felt when you got too drunk. And the next, like that night, maybe you didn't behave in a way you wanted to behave. And then the next morning, like you physically felt bad. Maybe you had anxiety, um, felt pretty crummy. But like if you don't give yourself enough time to fully get things out of your system, like 100% go a couple of days without alcohol and you're doing this regularly, you're just compounding that feeling. And you might, like, I didn't even notice. And then when I stopped drinking, it it really wasn't until like three or four months in that I was like, oh, I've made a lot of really big decisions and I've been very steady and I've had a lot of really difficult conversations that were running very emotionally high that normally I would have been like very unstable during and instead I was able to be like I know what I want and I know what I need to do to get it and I'm gonna have this conversation and it might not go the way that I want but I can control my reaction we wanted to shout out to some folks who had written in the last time i checked the email was justin who emailed us a really awesome message that was basically just telling us that we're really funny and really great yeah so keep those coming keep those coming thanks justin i know i said i would email you back but i'm not gonna lie i got really sick and i haven't had a chance to read your email all the way through but i'm going to and i will respond justin it's good for your mental health to have someone be like you're funny and i like you <laughs> so also I compliment your friends <laughs> yeah just compliment people it helps um so as far as the weekly bisexual news i had put things in but i kind of think that we should just talk about channing smith yep especially given this week's topic yeah i want to give a content warning that our weekly bisexual news involves outing bullying and suicide so channing smith was a 16 year old uh bisexual man who was outed and then completed suicide in tennessee Bisexual boy. He's, yeah, he's sorry. He's not a man. He's a boy. He's a child. He's a bisexual boy who um, some of his class, I think they were classmates, uh, he had exchanged explicit messages um, with another classmate and some pieces of shit 
got a hold of it and published them on social media, and he shot himself. I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, that's like a very sad example of why so many things are fucked up with the world. But in relation to what we're talking about this week, biphobia and mental health and feeling alone and invalidated and scared. Yeah. And humiliated. I mean, I know we have younger listeners. If you are feeling ashamed of yourself or your sexuality, I want to reiterate, we've said this before, but there's nothing wrong with you. Anyone who is making fun of you um, or degrading you or making you feel like you're not as much of a person or not as worthy of having normal human emotions is they are the wrong one. There's nothing wrong with you. Just so you know, there's nothing wrong with you. And I would say most of those people are probably going to grow up and look back and feel a little cringy about that type of behavior. Yeah. People who are trying to humiliate you by using your private content. Those are the people who have something wrong with them. Yeah. Or, or people who are just making fun of you. Those are the people who have something wrong. Yeah. There's no reason for someone who is secure about themselves and who feels good about themselves to do that. They are lashing out because they're feeling shitty about themselves. Yeah. They have stuff to figure out. Yeah. Um, that said, there is a lifeline if you need to talk to someone and not just listen to two people on a podcast talk at you. Uh, it's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, Lifeline, at 1-800-273-8255. There's also the Trevor Project Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-850-8078. So that's specific for LGBTQ youth. Yeah. I wanted to talk about my bising star, which is Jeffrey Gibson. He is an artist who I believe lives in New York. I went to the Brooklyn Museum. The fourth floor right now has an exhibition of LGBT art, um, and especially art that was made about Stonewall. It's a really, really cool exhibit. Very fun, very positive. Looks at the gay civil rights leaders of the last 40 years and really pays tribute to them in a fun and loving and positive way <laughs> I took my dad he seemed to like it um, and one of the paintings they had was by Jeffrey Gibson who is uh, a queer artist I was just looking at his stuff when I googled him just now and he apparently does costume art too but he is a queer artist of Choctaw and Cherokee descent and and a lot of his art intersects his his queer and, and Native American identity that's very cool. Sounds really cool. Do you know how long the fourth floor exhibit is up? I would say a, a, a bit. I'd say you probably have a year to see it. Because um, it's on the fourth floor, it's not like a super rotating exhibit Area, like yeah. they do on the first floor. Um, so go check it out. I will, uh, I'll post a link to the name of the exhibit because I also don't have that um, in the show notes. Very cool. 
Um, I wanted to call out Monstrous Regiment, which is actually a publisher. They published two books that I got in the mail. The Bible, Volume 1. Hell yeah. And The Bible, Volume 2, The New Testament. So it is a anthology of personal narratives and essays about bisexuality. They said... Bisexuals inhabit a liminal space between cultures often misunderstood or dismissed by the straight and gay communities alike. This selection of intersectional bi-voices has come together to share their stories, helping bi-voices be heard and identities seen. It's time to stand up and spread the good word. And I am only like three essays into the first volume and was legit like crying on the subway. Um, it's just very, it's not like, it's not like sad sorrow porn. It's just people talking about like short essays about being bi. And I'm like, oh, I, it's, that's it. Yes. Yeah. So it's very cool. I also followed them on Instagram, the publishing house. So through that, I could just follow all of the authors who contributed Cool. Which was great because I was just like, great. Now I have a lot more by people who are obviously creators because they contributed to this anthology. I'll lend you the books uh, once I'm done. Uh, call for advice. Do you have uh, any advice that you need? I didn't think of anything. Did you think of anything? I didn't really. I mean, I know I always need advice. What if your partner has a sexual desire? That you are not comfortable with, and you have to tell them that you don't want to do that. What is there like a how to set your your boundaries yeah. while still? Yeah, or not even sexual. I mean, like, what if your partner loves something and you're like, I'm not, I'm not ever gonna get into this. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great question. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing that I think comes up a lot in this far as like how to be sexually satisfied with your partner is like, what if you have different levels of sex drive? Yeah. And um, I think, is it, I think it's Dan Savage who's like, that's straight up the only thing that you can't negotiate in a relationship. Yeah. Because you can't ask someone to have sex when they don't want to have sex. You can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So. So that's a great question. My question it's about stereotypes. Um, and one is not necessarily about me, but kind of based off of like things that I've read on the internet. What if what you want to do or be or act or whatever is a stereotype of your community and you're like, well, I, I, I want to do this, but I also don't want to like perpetuate a stereotype or have somebody be like, yeah, I know. Like, I feel like there are harmless ones that like, I'm like, yeah, I tuck in my shirt all the time. I'm queer, but. <laughs> Is that a queer stereotype? Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, queer women tuck in their shirts. So funny. Yeah. Um, I was just telling a queer friend of mine to tuck in her shirt, and she she didn't have it tucked, so guess I, guess I win. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, get in line. <laughs> But yeah, it's a, it's like that in flannels or, you know, it's flannel season. I'm going to be wearing my flannels. So oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> flannels are such a thing. But okay. 
straight women also. Also, yeah. Straight men wear flannels are just comfortable. Okay. I'm thinking more of like the people who are asking online, like I'm, I'm married. I'm in a relationship. Um, my partner's down to like explore my sexuality with me. We're looking for threesomes, et cetera. Like that is falling into a stereotype that like bisexuals want threesomes. Right. And it's like, well, okay, how do you tow that line? Like, by all means, you should be able to, in a consensual experience with your partner, explore your sexuality as long as the third or fourth or fifth or whatever, how many people are all privy and consensual and of age and down, whatever. But like, you know, I don't know. Uh, Give us your answers (laughs) if you have them or just your guidance doesn't have to be the answer to all of our questions. Or if, if you have a question you want us to look into. Yeah. Or if you have advice not related to anything that we've asked. If you want to just send us compliments like Justin did, uh, that's always nice. Be a Justin. It's always nice when people do that. Um, you can write to us at hello goodbyes 42069. That's H-E-L-L-O-G-O-O-D-B-I-S. 42069 at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail. I think you go to anchor.fm slash hello goodbyes slash message and then you can leave us a voice memo. Yeah. Ooh, um, we also have an Instagram now. It's at hello goodbyes on Instagram. So you can message us there. We did get a message there. I can't remember the name of the person who sent it. They were great. We love you. We'll shout them on next time. Yeah. Um, But until then, thanks for listening. And goodbye goodbye from from the goodbyes. goodbyes.